Is your business plan very unclear and you're tirelessly working at a low-paying career? Let's help you get out of the rut and let go of the fear. It's time to excel into the million-dollar stratosphere. Now, here's your host of The Balanced Millionaire, who will take you there, Eileen Mendel. This is Eileen Mendel, your host of The Balanced Millionaire, and I have with me today a wonderful guest. Uh, We um, have known each other for several years, and because of um, the importance of relationships, and I know um, Valentine's Day is fast approaching, that she is remarkable in her field for relationships, mediation, um, and a number of other skills that involve interaction with um, interpersonal uh, uh, interactions and mediation. So let me just give you a few things that uh, my guest, Dr. Deborah Dupree, has accomplished. She is one of the top women in business, recently recognized by San Diego Business Journal. She is also the, um, she was also federal executive board, on the federal executive board of Los Angeles, recognized as mediator of the year for her insights in resolving workplace disputes. She was also in Newsweek magazine recognized as one of the top psychotherapists in San Diego. Her uniqueness is delivering a tailor-made message of inspiration, whether your audience is 10 or 10,000 in North America or abroad. In 2016, Dr. Dupree was ranked number nine by SkillPath Corporate Strategies among the top 10 conference trainers and speakers among hundreds of trainers worldwide. And she could tell you more about herself. So with that, welcome to our show, Dr. Dupree. Thank you so much, Eileen. It's a real pleasure to reconnect and be invited to be on this very important topic with relationships around love. You're welcome. So how did you get started? Let's just go back to, um, I know I've you know seen a number of things of how um, you grew up in a very large family of nine children, and you were one of seven. You were the number seven of the nine children, and you saw a lot of dysfunctionality within your family as you were growing up, which sort of inspired you to move into the direction you are today. But can you um, tell us more about that? Absolutely. Um, you know, thanks for recognizing that because, you know, we all have a story in us. And uh, one of the things I encourage people to do is to, you know, reflect back on their lives and particularly looking at the dynamics of their their family upbringing to see how it influences how we show up in our adult lives. And I took that journey and started it quite young, actually. And like you mentioned, I was seventh out of nine. There was a big gap between me and the, the next older six. And so 
we were little kids, my younger brother and sister, and we were referred to as the little kids. Uh, but I saw these, you know, this array of teenagers, um, you know, functioning in the household. And and then, too, my, my father and my grandfather were in a family-owned business. And so the dynamics of all of that going on um, between the, the family business and my, my grandfather was really a very difficult um, person, a very difficult individual. Um, we tended to run from him as soon as he would drive into our driveway. Uh, but to see how he would behave, you know, with my dad and with our, you know, our, our, our hired help, because um, my dad ran a dairy cattle operation, and so we did have hired help to assist. Uh, but then, too, is to see how that, you know, filtered down into the family dynamics. And again, you can imagine, I mean, nine personalities, not to mention mom and dad. It's like much like running a small department within an organization. Uh, lots of different um, takes on things. And, and um, you know, I, I learned to observe, be quiet and observe very early. And as I, you know, went my own way through high school and had my clashes with my dad, um as I got into, um, actually it was a psychology class the senior year of my high school years that it's like, oh my God, there's a whole world out there that knows and understands, you know, these differences among people and how people engage and get along or not. And I just, you know, ever, that, ever since then, it was a love of the psychology of human dynamics and still at it. Well, it's interesting because my background is very similar to yours. Um, I, uh, also grew up with uh, a grandfather and father that had ran a business together in the in the uh, dairy cattle as, as well as um, livestock uh, area, and um, yes, I, 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 there was a lot of dysfunctionality, but not as big as your family, uh, and uh, also. Um, you know, the way I would escape is I would read and study, and I just I was more on the technical side of things, and now. Um, I myself have um, learned that the softer side of things, the um, personalities really make a difference in everything you do from your home life to your business life. So uh, can you tell us a little bit more about um, how you got into the space you're in? Um, I know you you work with a lot of businesses, but you also work with individuals uh, regarding their personal lives as well. And tell us a little bit about each area that um, you focus in and, um, you know, with the kind of things that you do. Yeah. Well, you know, Eileen, as much as we or as long as we've known each other, I guess we never learned that little fact about ourselves that we grew up in a family owned business around dairy cattle, which is unique in and of itself. So we'll have to have a further conversation about that. Um, Yeah. Uh, You know, I guess, um, you know, one of the things as I was. I've I've come to realize, particularly with the passage of my mother uh, a few years ago, that, um, you know, my mom and dad married very young. Uh, You know, she was 18, 19. They were the high school homecoming king and queen sweethearts, that whole bit. And my mom always wanted to do something. And my dad also wanted to go to college. And for lots of dynamics at that time, post-World War II, you know, that didn't happen, and they started their families very young. Somehow, out of all my siblings, because nobody else does anything like what I do, um, I got the message from my mom, get out and see the world, get an education, don't marry young, and don't start a family too soon. And I did all that. I started traveling abroad when I was only 17. 
I later went to uh, Turkey by myself at 21. Uh, just got back from Belize last week, um, actually Sunday, uh, after traveling by myself as a, a birthday celebration. And I, I share that because what my, my mom's message was to me was very significant. And I couldn't figure out why I chose such a different path than um, my siblings. In saying that, then, I realized that I, I swore I would never be self-employed because of what I saw, the hours and time commitment that my dad and grandfather would have to put into it and, and vowed I was going to work for a corporation or a, a government entity or something. Well, I did that too. And I found that I didn't do well in that environment. And so as I went through graduate school and started looking at employment opportunities, um, really looked into lots of different things. And I actually fell into a line of work that really combined all my talents and my interests. And uh, and that's where I got exposed to working with so many different kinds of businesses, uh, helping them retain employees after medical conditions developed and so I, I just got a lot of exposure to different kinds of businesses, different types of leadership styles. And in that regard, you know, my fascination just continued to grow. And I took a very deliberate turn in, I'd say, the late 1990s um, about really expanding my um, background in uh, leadership dynamics. I had a foundation in organizational psychology uh, already and was fascinated there. But really, you know, like I said, took deliberate steps in the late 1990s, early 2000s to move more into that space. And um, and that's where I've continued to grow, although I continue to dabble with you know, individuals and family relationships because I know I can make a difference there. And so, so um, your focus has been, you know, the, um, I guess, the dynamics of how do you manage and lead a team, and also, um, you know, as a company grows bigger, there's, you know, more chaos and more, you know, as in, like you said, you know, even in your own family, individual personalities, how do you manage, you know, bring a commonality into the whole thing? So, you know, what what is your thought of, or, or what, what sort of techniques do you use to sort of, you know, as things, because constantly things are changing, in uh, corporate environments and also, you know, in families too, you know, as, um, you know, the, the family grows or grows older or someone passes away. I mean, there's the dynamics of that. But um, first talk to us about the business on the business side. What sort of things do you see as, you know, the company's growing, people are being promoted, um, there's competition within the company. You know, uh, there's um, different things, dynamics going on, different personalities, different skill sets. How do you, how do, does one manage all of that? Well, that's sort of the million dollar question, isn't it, Eileen? Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, if I, if I, you know, well, I'm trying to cap, uh, capsize that into some, you know, manageable nuggets that, you know, will make a difference, I believe. I guess, you know, having been a workplace mediator, uh, for so many years, and I, I still sort of marvel, how did I get into this line of business? Because uh, I tend to be conflict avoidant by nature, but I go looking for people in trouble. I guess that's what I do, and and I and I love, I love working with with um, individuals or teams that are experiencing difficulties in the dynamics of their relationships and and how they show up, 
And so one of the things I learned early in my mediation career didn't come from the field of psychology, actually, but as a mediator. And I have to admit, I've amassed many, many hours of training and I've taught people to become mediators um, throughout North America. So I have a lot of experience in that and being able to read people. And come, again, that comes back from my, my, my upbringing. But one of the key things that I found so beneficial in understanding these differences, you know, relatively nice people showing up so horribly sometimes when it came to managing um, others, uh, is to really help people dive into, you know, uh, their communication styles. I like to say, you know, we're all, after all, we're all part of the human race. And the first differentiator really is, are we male or female? You know, it's not only visible, but there's also biological differences, just anatomically, but, you know, the physiology of our brains and how we think and the neurotransmitters and all that. But then what I find to be most helpful as the next differentiator is to then guide people through and taking a look at their communication styles, of which there are four worldwide. It doesn't matter your gender, your age, your culture, your your regional upbringing, your religious upbringing. These four are pervasive. And I, even though we've had this knowledge around since the 1950s and maybe even longer, I'm, I'm, I continue to be amazed at how little people know about this because we can be highly intelligently smart, intellectually smart. And that's what usually makes us so good at what we do and how we rise because of our knowledge. But that has little to do with how we engage with others, how we show up with others, how we make decisions, how we manage conflict. And and sometimes people are, are, are naturally born leaders. Uh, the good news for those who want to be leaders who may not find themselves natural leaders is that we can learn to be good leaders. And I, and I make the distinction between leaders versus managers. Um, leaders know how to really inspire and motivate. And and so by using the communication styles as that foundation, then that starts helping sort of shape how people show up, and particularly in different situations and with different people. And by developing that deep understanding, then they can go on to use that information. I like to call, you know, the clues that we have readily available to us as we engage with others. What do we see in them? And how can we use that information then to make choices about how to show up and engage with them differently and more effectively? So you're talking about also understanding your own skills and your own natural abilities but also recognizing what the personality traits are of the people around you as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I quite frankly stay away from the word personality uh, because that is uh, uh, there's so many things that, that make up our personality and, and some of that is more fixed in nature. Uh, but there are many aspects that we can grow and learn and that's why I like to work with the communication styles. We do have natural communication styles, but the good news is that we can grow into the other ones with um, you know, some self-development, professional development, um, uh, openness to, to learning and growing. And, you know, and that's the beauty of human beings is that we continue to grow. We continue to learn and we can continue to evolve. Uh, I like to always say we are, are many times unconsciously incompetent. We simply don't know what we don't know. But then something happens, and then we can actually become consciously incompetent. Oh, I know it. I don't know. And then we can actually take steps 
to become consciously competent. You know, set off in certain fields of study, for example. Um, I know myself, I I was getting frustrated with the lack of success around certain types of problems. And so I decided rather late in life to go back and get my doctorate degree so I could dive deeper into better understanding, um, you know, some of the contemporary thinking and certainly the evolution of neuroscience and what we now know and understand about the mind-body connection is just phenomenal. And what we know today is so very different from what I studied 30 years ago as a graduate student. And, and that's why I get so excited today about uncovering and, and sharing information with people and, and, and seeing the difference that people can make in their lives uh, once they have you know, knowledge. Because where we really ultimately want to get is being unconsciously competent. It becomes just a part of who we are and the way we show up. And, and I, as I like to share with my clients, they sometimes say, Deborah, I just wish you would sit on my shoulder as I deal with that difficult person or I go into that difficult meeting with my boss, you know, and I said, well, just think about what we've talked about and, and, and how would Deborah deal with this? And um, and so I like to say is that, heck, you know, growing up in the family I did, I certainly didn't know what I know now and I don't function today the way I used to. I've grown so much and I've evolved and, and I'm able to use that in unconscious ways. It just is part of who I am now. And people can grow there. People can get there. But it is about being open and ready to change. And I always like to ask people, it's not what you're doing is wrong or right. The question really is, is it working for you? Are you really getting what you want out of your interactions with others with how you are currently showing up? And if not, then great. That's an opportunity. That's an opportunity to learn something different and and try some new ways to engage more effectively. So can you give us some examples in of some workplace um, situations where, let's say, um, you know, there was, um, you know, a, uh, I don't want to call it conflict in or difficulties in communication and you were able to resolve that, you know, for instance, um, was there an instance um, where maybe, you know, there was even, um, uh, you know, you know, the male female interaction. Let's 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 look at that because that's a big thing these days. You know, um, how women and men treat each other in the workplace. Um, yes, I, I would be happy to share a couple of examples. And what I'd like to say, though, before I even go there, is that. Um, Yes, there has been a lot of emphasis on male-female dynamics in the workplace uh, because I also do a lot around, as a mediator, around um, workplace harassment and hostile workplace um, environments. It's unfortunate to say that uh, some of the statistics at both the state and federal level that, that oversee the filing of complaints is that the filing of complaints from same sex and opposite sex towards female leaders is increasing. And also complaints among same sex male employees to male bosses is increasing. And they do tend to be around people who are um, maybe in less of the traditional job roles. And so just 
so what I'd like to say to that is that, um, unfortunately, I, I see a lot of conflict, not just between males and females, but males and males and females and females. And so it's just not limited to the opposite sexes, but within the same sex. So one of the examples I'll, I'll share with you, because it sort of illustrates what we've already talked about. Now, this does go back about five years, and I was called into a major um, hotel of a global chain, and they had done their annual employee survey, and they were just aghast at how poorly their managers had shown up, not only um, locally, but also regionally and internationally. And so the risk manager was aware of my um, my background and so called me in. And, and what we set out to do then is, after analyzing the results and seeing where the managers were showing up and the complaints of the employees, uh, we were able to uh, custom design a, a training program for some 75 managers from the GM down and took them on a journey of, you know, how to lead consciously and the impact of behavior and um, dive deeper into the communication styles as well as conflict management styles. And then we also did some one-on-one coaching. And there were a couple of, of what I called deputy managers, I guess they were called, um, that were heads, heads of very large divisions within the hotel. And one particular gentleman came to me in just a lot of frustration. She said, Deborah, I just don't know what to do. I, I you know, I, I consider myself a really nice guy. I actually grew up in the ranks of this very hotel starting at the bottom. And now I'm, here I am a division manager. I, I got my my master's degree and you know, business degree. And, and I, I haven't opened our policy, but my department has the highest number of complaints. Now, in his department, he did have a lot of female employees, um, more so than males, but the complaints were across both genders. And quite honestly, as we sort of dove into things with him, is that he had a manner of conducting himself as well as expressing himself that was actually quite scary. And so... And that's why I do a lot around how you show up matters and, and taking a look at the behavioral clues that are readily evident to us and recognize with an understanding of the neuroscience then about how how we can start impacting somebody physiologically that then impacts their emotional reaction before their cognitive brain even makes sense of things. And so once we're sort of able to break that down and, and help him recognize just that some of his behavior and how he showed up from the moment he entered the employee entrance and walked down the hallway, uh, we're actually driving people away from him rather than bringing them closer to him. And so actually with a relatively short period of time coaching him, he was able to really turn things around. And so I always do follow up with my clients. And so check back with him after 30 days and, and uh, finishing our coaching. And he goes, I can't believe it. You know, there's just such a difference already. And 90 days later, he goes, it's amazing. He goes, we've totally changed the way we're doing meetings. The employees are so engaged. And, you know, I, I mean, we can already see a, a downturn of of employees filing complaints and they are approaching me more readily rather than running to their union representatives to voice their concerns. And and so I was really excited to, to hear back from him a year later after their next employee uh, survey and to show how his department actually came out on top uh, in the entire hotel. And we were actually able to see um, those departments where the um, managers and, and division heads 
actually implemented in a concrete way some of the findings of the training and coaching in ways that really made a difference. And those that didn't do so well were either ones who, you know, didn't really believe in what we were doing or didn't do didn't attend the training because they weren't hired yet. Another um, manager in that same hotel actually used some of our findings and an activity I teach to engage the employees and they were able to naturally resolve some of the employee complaints or conflicts uh, among each other, uh, most notably among a couple of um, a few different females who were having difficulties in getting along. So that's where diving deeper and, and really sort of uncovering some of these basic characteristics um, that show up with each of the communication styles and how some of them can naturally um, generate more conflict unless we know what to do and how to manage them and uh, and others naturally get along better. Can you uh, be a little bit more specific in terms of some of the things like you said you worked with this deputy manager and he didn't even realize that his whole demeanor was frightening and, you know, and kind of instead of um, attracting people was repelling them. Mm -hmm. So what what were a few of the things that you told him to do? This is almost going to sound humorous because it's so simple. Um, but quite frankly, he would enter the building with a frown on his face. And when he frowned, his eyes got real narrow and his lips were like a pencil. And and so it was, it was teaching him really how to engage in some deep breathing before he even entered the building. Because deep breathing will relax our muscles and slow down our heart rate and and, um, and soften the facial expression. And, and then, so deep breathing was a key part of it. But then learning to smile and to greet people. And so then one of the activities I take people through are the power of connections and how important it is to connect with people. That's a natural condition of the human being. We do need to connect. And there's a lot of studies out there now that talk about the importance of connecting with people early in the day, particularly if you're living alone, how important it is to get outside and connect with people to say, good morning, how are you? And things like that. And our work world has really gotten, has gotten away from that. And and that's what we need to bring back in to our work world is is actually some of those social pleasantries just to connect with people before we launch into a conversation or launch into a project and one of the things i do around the power connection then is that you know i, I do it almost immediately anytime i do a, a, a speaking engagement or a training and then we talk about it and what was it like it, it felt really good you know i already feel more relaxed and and then I bring it back to, are you more likely to approach that person later in the day, having made that connection in the morning when a problem or concern does arise? Or imagine if you hadn't connected with them and, you know, like my my division manager, you know, already had a persona about him that people were afraid to approach him. You know, they were afraid he was going to erupt on them because he always looked angry. And so, you know, people would say time and time again that, yeah, if I had that connection first, it's much easier to approach somebody later in the day when there is a concern or a challenge. We've already had that connection. We already know um, we know we have some commonality around something. And so that's where I, I do a lot around teaching managers and leaders and how to connect with their employees in short, simple ways that don't take much time, but they're powerful. Uh I'm just thinking back of some of the things that I encountered when I was working in companies. And of course, um, you do, you know, you do have certain, you know, uh, friends or people that you, you know, you're working side by side with 
And then, you know, like you said, um, maybe, you know, as the company grows, uh, the connection with, you know, people uh, who are uh, in separate, you know, rooms or, or floors from you or whatever, you have certain opinions of, of them because you haven't even interacted much. And so your judgments, you know, may be false. Your perceptions are not always correct until you start, you know, engaging in more interaction. So what do you propose? Um, how can businesses from the outset, instead of having, you know, I know that's your job to resolve conflicts, um, you know, that are pre-existing or existing, but if a company is a brand new company and wants to have a unified team and avoid conflicts, are, are there things that could be done ahead of time to ameliorate um, and avoid, you know, some of the things that happen later on as a company grows larger? Yeah, and, and, and that's, this is a great question. Um, there, there are things to do, and it does start, though, by taking a look at, you know, the, the mindset of the leaders to begin with. Some leaders, you know, and, and I'm a little uncomfortable because I'm using the word leaders, but because um, leader, uh, to me, an effective leader doesn't embrace this mindset. Um, some leaders, so I'll go back to what I was saying. Some leaders embrace the mindset that they can't tell their employees too much information, and so they withhold. And so then employees are going along, but they don't know where they're going. It's a and need to know. Yeah, the need. The, the term that I've heard in corporations, it's on a need-to-know basis. Yeah, yeah. And yet, you know, when the, the thing is, is that, again, employees are not dumb. Employees can sense, you know, tension. Uh, employees can sense change of direction um, when, you know, decisions are made and then they get changed or reversed. And, you know, they can read, you know, behavior. They may not know what it means, but they can see it. So you know, employees are not impervious to noticing what's going on and so particularly if it's negative news or bad news and so again we as human beings have a need to know you know when we know then that reduces our anxiety and we can keep you know focused on the business of doing our jobs but when we don't know that actually increases our anxiety and you know it's imagine being you know getting in your vehicle and just start driving but you really don't know where you're going. And so, you, well, am I taking a right or a left? And, and was that what I'm looking for? You know, so there's a, well, I mean, just even using um, our maps, you know, and things like that to know where we're going reduces our anxiety as we proceed down that pathway. And so it is a fine line. Um, I don't have a, you know, a magic bullet here, but, you know, it, it's, it's around letting employees know enough so that they aren't anxious over things. And yet, you know, being in frequent communication with them is also very important. And so, uh, in fact, I'm working on an article right now about how leaders can lead more effectively with constructive feedback and what that looks like. And so it's not only feedback to them and being open to that, but also how to give feedback to their employees so that they're not kept in isolation um, or in the dark about what's going on. So that's one key thing, um, because, again, employees will act out when they don't know and um, not do their job. And then they get called for performance review issues. And it, I've seen it trickle down so many times where that withholding of information at the top um, actually creates a murky environment. Uh, for a lot of misbehavior. 
That's uh, that, Those are fantastic points. We're going to take a break right now, but hang on, and we'll be right back with Dr. Deborah Dupree, and there's more to come. Former highly paid corporate insider and expert in scaling businesses for over three decades, Eileen Mindell is a serial entrepreneur, business consultant, renowned speaker, and author. Tune into The Balanced Millionaire on bbsradio.com weekly on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Central, and 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to learn the secrets to working fewer hours and achieving financial breakthroughs, increased revenue, and prosperity while maintaining personal and professional balance and harmony. You can also hear us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Spotify. To schedule a private consultation about your business, call or text 760-450-6133 or visit inneredgeinternational.com. 760-450-6133 or visit inneredgeinternational.com. Hello, everyone. This is Eileen Mendel, your host of The Balanced Millionaire, and I have with me my guest, Dr. Deborah Dupree, PhD, psychologist and mediator and expert in relationships. So, Deborah, we talked a little bit about some of the things that you do as uh, both a mediator as well as communication inside the business. We're seeing some things in 2020 um, that kind of started up or rumbled up in the last few years, but are coming to a head more or less um, in this decade. And can you kind of um, synopse for us some of the things that are changing um, in the workforce, in the relationships, being that there's more women in the uh, workforce now and you know, expectations, more balance in life is expected. Um, you know, people are, there's, you know, two working uh, spouses, you know, in the family. And, you know, um, tell us a little bit more about what we can anticipate and what sort of things uh, we can do about that. Yeah, again, the million dollar question here. Uh, you know, um, yeah, thanks for sort of providing a synopsis of some of those key things. Uh because I, I, I imagine, maybe not, I don't know, a lot of your listeners um, uh, may know that, you know, uh, the, the female in the workplace is actually um, larger, or is the largest um, component in the workplace, very different from, you know, um, you know, 40, 50 years ago, and it's been gradually increasing. There are also more females that hold doctorate level degrees than males in today's world. And so, you know, there, there are a lot of uh, socioeconomic factors that drive that. You know, certainly the work world opened up considerably after World War II, and a lot of women went to work in order to support the war effort, and they didn't go away uh, after the war ended. And so um, the dynamics started shifting there. And and there were just a lot more freedoms and acceptance about women working. And then out of necessity, too, you know, the divorce rate has grown uh, tremendously over the last number of years. And, and slightly more than half of all marriages end in divorce. And with that, too, some changing attitudes about divorce that used to be that, you know, 
primarily females were provided, you know, um, spousal support, you know, when the marriage ended, because oftentimes they were the stay-at-home uh, adult in the household raising the family. However, you know, a, a lot of a lot more people are achieving those educations and uh, in, in rising in prominence in the workplace too, in terms of um, higher higher levels of leadership. And so you know, the tables have have shifted now in that, you know, the old notions of spousal support, for example, in, in divorce is very different. In California, if you've been married 10 years or less, you're only entitled to half the life of the marriage in spousal support. And so it's expected, uh, you know, unless you've been married 30, 40 years, that you're going to go back to work uh, after a divorce. And so that's just one expectation there that, you know, a lot of women have, have after the ending of a marriage, have had to go back and go to school and go get work and, and so forth. But that's just sort of the reality of um, sort of our, our dual income households these days too, uh, particularly in California where it's really expensive to live. It's hard to uh, um, really survive comfortably on one income unless it's so phenomenally great. Uh, but there's a, a strong human need to want to work and to contribute in many ways. And so just right there, we you know both, both um, parts of a, marriage working, there's not a whole lot of time for the the marriage part of it. And then when we add children, and uh, believe me, I, uh, as, I, as my mom told me, as I mentioned in the earlier segment, is don't get married young and don't start a family too young. And I didn't. I was actually 39 when I had my first child. And uh, I'd already risen uh, way up in my career, and I, I finally felt that we had a, I had a lifestyle where I didn't stop working, uh, but I could afford to hire care. And um, and I really feel my children are, I have a son too, I had my second one at 42. Um, but I, I see, you know, even with those amenities and, uh, you know, comfortable lifestyle, you know, it was hard. We were both self-employed, and um, uh, having quality time as a family with all of us was hard to find. I did a lot with my children without their dad just because he wasn't available. But then also uh, one of the mistakes I can see because my marriage didn't survive after 15 years is that we didn't make enough time for ourselves. And that's one of the things I see uh, a lot of as I work with you know, dual income families is that they're having trouble in their their marital relationship because they really don't spend any time together, and 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 that's almost too much time is spent invested in the children and in, in giving the children what they didn't what the parents didn't have and not enough time on the quality of the marital relationship and and so that's a big problem and we need to redirect that in order for marriages to survive. And also, there's greater and greater demands as workforces are being cut. And, you know, people are doing more than, you know, their share of, you know, within their, um, you know, the responsibilities that they were originally hired for. They have to spend longer hours. I mean, if you're not on an hourly wage or on a salary, a lot of, uh, you know, there's fear of losing your job if you don't put those extra hours in or do some work at home to, you know, to shine at the office, so to speak. So that must be also having an impact on um, you know, time together. Right, right, yeah. And um, I, I would agree with you. I mean, people are working longer hours and then not to mention the commute time that people engaged in. And so, uh, you know, I, I know people, you know, 
live further away in order to um, to find more affordable housing. But that commute time then takes a toll on people and the time that they have available for their families as well. And so um, I, this is where I, I see the potential for really rethinking and um, reexamining um, communities and uh, centers for work. Uh, you know, more people are, and I would say particularly among the younger generation that, um, that, you know, people are making different lifestyle choices in, in terms of, you know, living closer to where they work, uh, a little bit more urban environment rather than the suburban environment. And, um, and you know, delaying home purchases, um, delaying the start of families and things like that. And so, uh, you know, I, I was I continue to see these as maybe evolving trends as we move along. And certainly the, the millennial population brings to the forefront a, a a very big shift in how we look at relationships in the world of work and, um, you know, giving back to the communities and to the environment. Uh, and I do a lot of work around generational differences, too. And I, I know there are a lot of complaints about, you know, from particularly from the baby boomers about the millennials. And and as I always like to say, but who raised them? You know, <laughs> uh, we contributed to that. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and so it, with every generation, there's a lot of socioeconomic and historical factors that drive, you know, people's attitudes in the current generations. And so um, uh, that's just something I really encourage people to take a closer look at rather than just making these uh, you know, blanket judgments about, you know, where people are showing up. And particularly, you know, in the workforce then, too, is that, you know, we have a highly educated um, millennial population for the most part. And you know, certainly much more up on technology. And so in many cases, we're seeing, you know, younger um, leaders over uh, older employees. And so that also creates, um, you know, some differences, shall we say, and challenges uh, both ways um, in, in terms of how we lead and how we follow and how we show up and work and the kinds of conflicts that can erupt from, from that. So uh, basically, there's uh, both a social and economic impact of, like you said, um, the uh, the demands of having two of the dual uh, dual partners, whether they're you know living together or already married and starting a family or whatever, and the um, you know the um, social impact or cultural impact of having, um, like you said, uh, being able to live comfortably, being able to have a quality of life. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and so uh, there, there have actually been some studies that have been done as far as, you know, um, what level of income do you really need to have in order to be happy? You know, certainly if you don't have enough and you're struggling and meeting basic needs, you know, like um, Maslow's hierarchy, basic needs of, you know, um, you know, food and, and protection and things like that. And so if, you, if you're struggling with housing, you know, if you're struggling to put food on the table, you know, some of your very basic levels of needs are, are, are being challenged. And, and when we're challenge at that very basic level, then it's hard to move up the, the ladder, so to speak, in terms of, you know, personal fulfillment through our relationships, um, you know, our family, and then certainly, you know, how we show up in the community or in our workplaces. And definitely, you know, if we have any aspirations for leadership. And so 
I, I apologize, I don't remember the exact citing for this because it's about three or four years old now. Um, in in me in the number, I'm going to preface this. The number that I'm going to reference here is not really applicable to us here in California, where the cost of living is much higher and the salaries tend to be much higher. But in other parts of the country, uh, sort of a baseline of at least seventy thousand dollars per year was considered the, sort of the, the necessary in order to live in a relatively comfortable lifestyle without being, you know, financially pressed to meet those basic needs. And not that you're living richly or, you know, um, lavishly in any kind of way or sending your kids to private school and that kind of income. Uh, but, you know, that sort of gives you a certain thing. And there was a company out of Washington, actually, um, that came out of this study then, and he was quite recognized. And again, I apologize, I don't remember the name of it. Um, but, you know, he had, he had started the company and grew it, and he was now earning a million bucks a year. And uh, But he stayed pretty connected to his employees. And what he realized is that there were employees, even though they paid pretty well, there were employees that were definitely very financially challenged, just given you know, circumstances in their lives, um, like maybe health conditions and medical bills, or maybe being divorced and not getting child support from a parent, or, you know, I mean, all kinds of things. And so people were really struggling. And so what he set out to do was that he actually um, reduced his salary in order to put money back into the company and then. Um, raised everyone's income and set out on a business plan of doing that over several years so that everybody could live, you know, comfortably in their community. And what happened by doing that is that uh, he developed a sense of loyalty that was almost unsurpassed and his retention of employees, their commitment to quality and being at work you know, the productivity went up phenomenally, that the company actually grew to replace, you know, any uh, any of the reductions in income and operations that he had achieved in order to give everybody a more equitable pay. So those kinds of basic things can impact our overall well-being. And, and uh, there's another article, I mean, there's a lot going on about just happiness and what contributes to it and and the science behind happiness too in terms of what do we feel and what do we experience and how does that impact our brain functioning so i i encourage your listeners to to dive into that more it's really a fascinating area of, of topic well deborah this has been really really fascinating and um how can people get in touch with you if they want to communicate with you or hire you for their own businesses. Well, thank you for that opportunity to, to let them know how to reach me. I appreciate that. Um, certainly, you can visit me at my website, which is www.relationships-at-work.com. And when you visit there, there's a couple of things I'd like to um, in, invite you to explore. There is a link to my um, complimentary ebook, Your Emotional Potential, How You Show Up Matters. And so this talks about some of the neurobiology be behind how we show up and some of the clues that we can be looking for. And so I encourage you to download that. Uh, there's also, um, if you look at uh, services and then click click on that and there's a section called diving deeper I do offer a complimentary what I call the spice game uh, because you know after all what makes food so great it's the different spices we use right and so what makes our communities and our workplaces so great 
and not <laughs> is the combination of spices. And so it's a quick dive into um, our communication styles and you get some immediate results along with uh, my communication guide on dealing with different, sometimes difficult people. Because sometimes you might be somebody else's difficult person. So again, relationships hyphen at hyphen work.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn under Dr. Deborah Dupree as well as Facebook under Dr. Deborah Dupree. So Deborah, what would you like to leave the audience with that they can um, start using in their own lives and their own businesses? One is that, you know, to um, be open to learning more about yourself, be open to learning about the impact you have on others because we can make a powerful difference. And by doing so, by developing some awareness and taking some steps to engage in some self-growth, I can guarantee you that you'll live much happier um, by taking some steps in these directions. And again, your overall sense of happiness will be much better. Your relationships will be much stronger. Um, Learning how to communicate differently uh, you'd be surprised rather than erupting into conflict how you can really get through some difficult things. So be open to change, be open to growing and take stock and say, where am I today? And am I, is it getting me where I want to go? And if not, embark on a new course of, of action. And that's through someone like you, Eileen, or, or myself. And um, there's a lot of resources out there today that we didn't used to have. So take advantage of it. I, th- I think you're right on target. Um, I think people who are open to change, open to developing themselves, are probably leading more happier, healthier lives. The research so, shows it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for being a guest on our show today. Uh, we really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, as Deborah said, uh, feel free to go to her website and um, relationships that that matter. And uh, we're so happy to have you as our guest and particularly um, in 2020, relationships, uh, we could see a lot of things happening and transpiring that are different from what we've seen in the past. And, you know, people need to to be open to the change and and the evolution that, you know, that's going on and and be um, more receptive to, uh, you know, to, to changing themselves as well as listening to what others have to say. So thank you so much. And uh, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Eileen. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you. And you too. Thank you for tuning into The Balanced Millionaire with your host, Eileen Mendel, business consultant, multimedia marketing expert, renowned speaker and author. Connect with Eileen Mendel, The Balanced Millionaire. Increase your confidence, creativity, balance, awareness, direction, motivation, and catapult your business to the next level and beyond.